I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. There's been continued fallout from remarks made by the Church of Ireland Archbishop of Dublin and Glendalough in which he criticised members who described newcomers as polyester Protestants. And in an article earlier this week in the Irish Times, Archbishop Michael Jackson also lamented the treatment meted out in Ireland to members of his church who had fought in the two world wars. We'll be keeping an eye on that story. On Wednesday, Pope Francis suspended the Bishop of Limburg, Franz Peter Tebarts van Elst, who has come under intense criticism after spending €31 million on his residence. The decision came after the bishop had a 20-minute audience with the pontiff on Monday. And on Tuesday, the Sultan of Brunei announced that he would rule his oil-rich Islamic country according to Sharia laws, including death by stoning for adultery, the amputation of limbs for theft, flogging for alcohol consumption and abortion and other such punishments. Since 1926, World Missions Ireland has been organising Mission Month here and it comes to an end on Thursday next, October the 31st. To many brought up in Catholic schools, the missions meant bringing in the weekly penny for the black babies, but that's a far cry from where missionaries are involved today. I'm joined now in studio by Sister Isabel Smith, a medical missionary of Mary, who's worked in Tanzania and Brazil, to tell us about her work and the work of the modern missionary. Now, it's all changed since you began, I imagine. Yes, well, I began even before Vatican II, but we've seen an awful lot of change. But, of course, the uh, church's mission goes on uh, and uh, we are very involved. There are still, uh, according to World Mission Ireland, they're telling us there are still 1,500 Irish missionaries working in 83 countries. But, of course, mission is not only over there. Going back to the times of Pope Paul VI, we have been educated to see uh, world mission as not only having geographical frontiers, but there are social justice frontiers now which are calling all of us, whatever country we live in. One of those uh, frontiers, if you like, I would call it the cutting edge of the church's mission today, is the problem of human trafficking and child sexual exploitation all over the world. Well, tell us a bit more about that and how the churches can get involved. Well, since 2005, when a number of us who are uh, members of CORI and of the Irish Missionary Union, we formed an organisation called APT, Act to Prevent Trafficking. We have a website called aptireland.org. I would like any diocese who could to to prepare a diocesan pastoral plan. And I think every parish council really could have a group working against people being trafficked into Ireland and through Ireland to Britain and the continent and then taking on the great problem of child sexual exploitation around the world. I have just come back from, I spent the last week in Switzerland at a a seminar on the problem of what they call CSEC, commercial sexual exploitation of children. And the last word of the professor of tourism in that university was, how can we get the churches involved? And how from can your we experience, get... do you think there's a willingness? 
Yes, I think so. I think so. Uh, I think in the churches today, people are willing to take up issues of social justice as part of their faith commitment. And it's not only for Catholics. It's not only for Christian Protestants. It's for Muslims too. It's for all the great people who have a moral code coming from their faith. We all need to work together to address these global problems because the number of children being exploited is colossal. It's colossal in Europe, but it's colossal all around the world. The uh, UN estimates that among little girls, 150 million are subjected to child sexual exploitation every year and 73 million little boys. We are now embarking upon a programme with the tourism industry in Ireland to encourage them to adopt the code that's a un- an international code of ethics which uh, promotes responsible tourism that will not make it something that they will sell for the purposes of sexual trade. Another thing that we did only last week in Trinity College and in Maynooth, we brought from Belfast a wonderful theatre company called Spanner in the Works who have a production called Diablo which explores the problem of sex trafficking in Ireland And I would encourage any parish, any group, any community group, any drama group to bring this company, Spanner in the Works, with their play Diablo. Because when you've watched this for one hour, you understand the terrible drama of being trafficked. Now, for individuals, you were telling me, too, that there's a documentary that went out on our Doc on One that people could access. Indeed. One of the things we did in APT a couple of years ago, we were in Geneva at a a hearing of the United Nations uh, Human Rights Group. and We met a woman whom we call Iris. She was captured as a university student. She didn't come from poverty. And as she told her story, her brother, who was a student in Ireland, was sitting beside her in the sofa in our little sitting room and hearing the details for the first time. Now, that's a podcast on the RTE Doc on One webpage called uh, Sex Slave. A human body can never be for sale and no part of a human body a lot of those who are taken uh, for in trafficking have organs removed. 10% of all kidney transplants in the world, the kidneys that are available, have been taken from a trafficked person. Well, we'll put details of what you've been talking about there on our website later. Can I come now to Irish missionaries, again, who are abroad? Yes. And health is a big area for them now, isn't it? They're involved. Healthcare, of course. Well, the Medical Missionaries of Mary, we've been engaged in healthcare now for more than 75 years. Our latest mission is in South Sudan. We just founded it last year and we have uh, three young missionaries uh, there. And uh, they're working uh, now to try and address the uh, health issues of people who have been displaced by war there. But of course, we still have the other problems. We have the problems of uh, AIDS, of course, and we have the problems of maternal mortality, um, the healing of um, fistula repair, which a lot of women suffer from in childbirth in Africa. And what about the vexed notion of condoms when dealing with HIV and AIDS? Well, I think my colleague, Sister Moore, always says to me, as well as the sixth commandment, don't forget there's the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. 
and we would certainly our our um, mission would always be to give all the information that's available from a medical scientific viewpoint and the person decides what they're going to do we don't tell them what to do there's a couple of days left in the mission month what's happening I think that in the parishes, people are still very concerned about uh, taking on activities that will help the work of the church in far-flung places, some of them in very, very needy places, like I mentioned. Uh, There are, of course, many other parts of the world we'd be very concerned about. uh, The Northern Caucasus, Eastern Europe, places where there are no missionaries. And uh, we have to reach out to those people. And in our parishes, I think every parish has their own world mission programme. And there's plenty for people to do and to get involved with there. Sister Isabel, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Now we turn our attention to Dublin's recent theatre festival with two plays in particular registering on our radar. Corn Exchange's production of Eugene O'Neill's Desire Under the Elms now finished its run and the Abbey Theatre's production of the new Frank McGuinness play The Hanging Gardens, which runs until Saturday, November the 9th. We sent along three representatives, Louise Hall, Emer Horgan and Fardus Sultan. And they join us now to tell us what they thought Now, both plays are about families, and I think it's fair to say dysfunction on families. So let's start with you, Fardus. You only saw one of the productions, the McGuinness play. What did you think of that, The Hanging Gardens? That's right, I've seen The Hanging Gardens. Um, It was a portrayal of a a, a family. And what I found very interesting from, you know, from my own background is the relationship between children and the parents. Sometimes lack of respect, uh, sometimes also uh, not not showing the 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 love as well. Uh, although it was always there, it's a very emotional uh, drama. But um, certainly there are lots of things on the plate to discuss. You know, um, one of them even kind of a relationship between mother and father. We'll come back to some of those in a moment. Emer Louise, how did it compare then with Desire Under the Elms by Eugene O'Neill? Well, I saw a huge comparison, particularly if you're going to bring religion and a sp- the spiritual sense into it, because Desire Under the Elms, you had a lot of Old Testament in it and there was a lot of vengeance and the wrath of God. And yet in the Hanging Gardens, although the family were, were not very religious and they had turned their back on God, you actually still see them embody gospel messages as they work out their differences. You know, that love, the peace, forgiveness. They have a lot of problems in their family, but it does come full circle and you do see them work out and stick together. So even though he has turned his back on God and he actually feels that he's done his kids a favour, he's still actually promoting a lot of messages of the New Testament. So in comparison to Desire and the Elms, you saw this, uh, the the father of the family was a very vengeful man and he was almost cursing his sons when they were going out and leaving the farm in search of gold. Emer, would you agree? Uh, Yes, I thought they're both very strong family plays. Um, I mean, you called it dysfunctional and there's always a debate about what's, what's, what's functional. But certainly they, they both families have huge problems. There's bitterness within each family. Um, inability to show love and affection is common to both plays. Um, this, the the characterization of the father in particular, very, very strong role within, very strongly written in both plays. 
comparisons in the language as well, the, the biblical extreme language of Desire Under the Elms, where he does actually curse. I mean, he is like like an Old Testament figure, you know, with his long stick, you know, shaking it at the at the two lads who are off to California. Eh? And then in in the Hanging Gardens, it's there's a lot of very heightened poetic language, declamatory language. Um, and the themes as, as well, the themes of um, family disharmony, tribe, being part of a tribe and the others outside. Um, and then the, the other kind of underlying, very central to both of them, but maybe not obvious until you start to think about it, the dementia or delusionary kind of theme, which is which is what dementia is within the Hanging Gardens and the delusions are within the other play. Well, Fardis, if we can come back to you, you talked about uh, you're looking at the relationships coming from your Muslim background and what struck you? They're different, obviously, to what you would have experienced. Well, there was a point in the play where uh, the children together with mother discussed what to do um, with a father who suffers from dementia. We're talking about now the hanging gardens that, and Sam the father is suffering from dementia and all the children have come home and they're trying to decide what to that's do. That's right, that's right. What I found interesting is that they were actually debating <laughs> what to do where from the Islamic perspective is that it, it is a responsibility of the children to look after the parents in the same manner as the parents looked after us as we were children. We have the responsibility and in a way honour of looking after the, the, the parents. But you could see those things happening in the mo- modern, if you like, Muslim family uh, because of the the lifestyle is changing so those aspects are now starting to be debated as well so for instance where you wouldn't see nursing homes in lots of um, Arab countries now there are commonplace as well so it's interesting to see that debate going on uh, from you know from my perspective. Well ultimately the decision was made that they would keep him at home and look after him yeah, but I mean, the mother saying all the time that it would be his decision though Ultimately, it was his decision, but you really needed the family to help him in his decision. It was a dilemma because although he was unwell, there there were times that he was very aware that he was unwell. So, you know, he he knew that he was a burden on the family. And there was even a point where he was calling out to Satan to open the fires of hell and take him. And at a point then he turned to his family and almost begged them that they would help him end his life. So that opened up the debate on assisted suicide and euthanasia. It was the hanging gardens of Babylon and he was the king of those gardens and they wanted to keep their king in his rightful home. And I thought it was lovely the way, although they had their differences and their arguments, they did all pull together at the end. That wasn't the case with desire under the elm each of them in their own way couldn't wait to see the back of their father Absolutely yeah he, he, the sooner he was gone the better for, for everyone really and of course he, does, he doesn't go he, he is the one who actually makes his decision in the end and says that he will rather uh, burn the farm and destroy the land rather than have it inherited in a way that he doesn't want uh, so he, he remains the patriarch I think in that play and uh, whereas in the Hanging Gardens I mean the, the, the issue of dementia is is kind of interesting or how it is how it's portrayed in the play because although he has lucid moments which is very characteristic I think of people who are suffering from memory loss it's actually quite sad at the end because at the very end of the play it's almost as though the playwright has sped up the process uh, and as the family are rally, rallying around in I, I, I mean I'm not sure how well it was going to work out because they were <laughs> they were coming with a whole lot of problems to the the problem of the dad but at the end he he actually He's losing, he losing his words. He's trying to say the word word 
and he ends up at the very end of the play as the lights dim he's just mouthing the word because he can't actually find it. Difficult for the audience I read it afterwards and I thought it read and you were able to distinguish more easily at which points he was lucid and at which points he wasn't when you're watching it on stage it's confusing at times do you agree? Yeah but it was also very emotional and there was even some times where the audience had this laughter but it was a nervous laughter because yeah and we were surprised but we thought it was more when we were talking that it was probably more nerves because they were humorous situations but very sad I mean the opening scene was probably one of the most powerful I've seen in a long time where you have this man in his pyjamas sitting on a chair out in these beautiful lush gardens but it is pouring rain in the middle of the night and he is in his element his, he's ranting he's raving he's laughing uh, but you know he's not in his right mind and slowly his family are coming out one by one trying to guide him back into the house and eventually it does take the four of them to bring him in so it's very emotional and within it a sense of loneliness and that's something that the father in Desire Under the Elms talks about his loneliness yes. he's been married he's on his third wife he's on his third wife and um, you know none of them have really They've neither given him children that he's been terribly proud of, nor have they lasted. I mean, he's he's accused of, of, of you know, driving them into the ground with work. But uh, within that play, there is I mean, it is high tragedy, really, uh, Desire Under the Elms. And there is they, they refer to and, and there is a sense of lonesomeness uh, for all of them. They're all they're very alone. As Emer said, Desire Under the Elms doesn't have too much of a happy ending and people might think the Hanging Gardens is very sad at the end too, but it is represented in some way of family life and they're definitely worth going to see. Emer. And you can always, you know, you can always look at it and think, well, gosh, things aren't so bad in my <laughs> back home. <laughs> well, the Hanging Gardens continues at the Abbey Theatre until Saturday, November the 9th. Fardus Sultan, Louise Hall and Emer Horgan, thank you. Thanks, Eileen. Dubliners making their way home from work on Wednesday evening may not have been saying prayers to St Anthony as they tried to negotiate their way through chaotic traffic jams caused by the visit of the saints' relics to St Mary of the Angels Church. Thousands of people have been queuing at churches around the country to venerate the relics of St Anthony. One of the most popular Catholic saints, he is of course particularly known for his ability to find lost articles. The relics arrived in Glasgow tonight, but their first port of call was at the Franciscan Church of the Visitation in Fairview in Dublin, and Avril Hoare was there to report for the Godslot. I think of myself as somebody that lives in the modern world, And I firmly believe that St. Anthony is active in the modern world. And the reason why I say that is, he used to find my keys, now he finds my cell phone. Archbishop of Dublin, Dermot Martin. The church was packed inside and out, as hundreds greeted the arrival of the relics of St. Anthony of Padua. I do come up from Gory to Merton's Street to St. Anthony. Why? Because it's a miracle worker. He gets us everything, doesn't he? Yeah. He's uh, my favourite saint. Why is he your favourite? Because he never lets me down. People are crying out for something in their lives with the church. Couldn't believe it when I saw the crowd. Sanctity is not something that is extraneous, different to our ordinary daily lives and our bodily lives. Holiness is attained not by a mysterious flight away from reality, but it's something that's worked out the toil of mind and body by each one of us under the guidance of the spirit. Holiness must touch every fabric of our human being. This was echoed by Father Mario Conte, 
a Franciscan friar based in Padua who accompanied the relics and who explained their meaning. In a certain way, we all have relics at home. I'm sure you don't have a part of your grandmother in one of the, your drawers, but I'm sure that you have something which belonged to somebody you loved and who is not with you any longer. For example, I have the wedding ring of my mother. My mother died a few years ago. It's so small I can't even wear it. It's common. But when I hold it in my hand, I feel her next to me. It's a connection. It's a link of love. And he told the congregation that when they touched the relics of St. Anthony, they shouldn't expect something extraordinary to happen. So when after the Mass, you will be able to go there and touch the relic of St. Anthony. You won't be magical, nothing superstitious. And I can assure you that you won't see sparks. It will be like giving your hand to a friend, your friend, St. Anthony. But many there felt the occasion was extraordinary. Obviously, religion is alive and well in Dublin by this turnout right out the door. What They're does St. Anthony mean to you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm named after him, first of all. <laughs> so I have a bit of a devotion to him. We prayed to him at home. We done a Venus to him. And we knew he was here. We just wanted it. We had to be here. We just had to come. He, he done a lot of... He, we got a lot of favours from him that we asked and we done the Venus. Now you've just come out from touching the relic. How yeah. do you feel? Great, lovely. I'd love to go back in again. In his homily during the Mass, Archbishop Martin acknowledged the recent scandals that have affected the Catholic Church. Christianity and the Judeo-Christian tradition have truly helped to shape what is good in Irish society and has left an indelible mark of goodness on our culture. Sadly, we know that when church people deviated from that true message, lives were ruined. When I spoke to Father Conte after the Mass, he too referred to the subject. But he said he believed there were many good people working within the church in Ireland and that Catholics need to know that they are cared for. I think they deserve uh, to see that, uh, I mean, uh, there are still friars, priests who care for them because I think that uh, there were a lot of scandals as, as we know and uh, but uh, there are a lot of good people, first of all, and a lot of good priests, a lot of good bishops, a lot of good friars, and who care about them. For the people who flocked into the church on that dark evening, and for those who couldn't get in and stood outside, the focus was St. Anthony, finder of lost things, and, said Archbishop Martin, perhaps people too. We're gathered here this evening for this moment of prayer in the presence of the relics of St. Anthony of Padua. We've all turned, I'm sure, to St. Anthony to find something that we lost. But we should also turn to St. Anthony when we find ourselves lost, when we get lost in sin and self-centeredness in our own preoccupations. And for some, it was just an opportunity to say thanks. Well, we have faith in St. Anthony and I've got many great blessings from him. 
and we were married in that church 55 years ago and we're still together, thanks be to God. It was a marvellous experience and he did a lot for us. He helped us buy our house when things were tough, like to get the money. The houses mightn't have been as dear, but it was just hard going then. But thank God, I came back to say thanks. That report was compiled by Avril Hoare. On RTE1 television at half past ten on Sunday night, Gay Byrne's guest on The Meaning of Life is soprano Celine Byrne, while on Bank Holiday Monday night, Mick Pilo will be asking a panel of celebrities what's it all about in Beyond Belief. Our telephone number is 01208 Our email is godslot at rte.ie and the postal address is the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. Next Friday is All Saints Day, which means that it follows the Eve of All Hallows or Halloween. So we'll have a suitably spooky programme as our regular film correspondent Barry Macmillan looks at Satan on celluloid. And we'll hear about a festival of ghosts. So do join us if you dare. Good evening. Slán is